Father, we come before you today seeking to hear your voice, seeking to know you more. Your word tells us over and over that we're part of a kingdom and that you've brought a kingdom. Help us to understand that kingdom and how you brought it about and what we are to do to further your kingdom. Father, we we know that there are many times we come to you, perhaps a little selfishly with our own cares. It's not selfish in that you want to hear them, but sometimes we get so consumed with our problems that we miss out on what you want to say to us. So we pray that you would be speaking to us loud and clear and that we would have open ears and hearts to hear what it is you desire to say. Most of all, we ask for your spirit to be speaking and not I. We ask for receptive hearts, a receptive mind. Have your way in us and have your way in our world. We love you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you do. Amen. It had uh, it had started with a hard, hard week. It went from Sunday. They were entering Jerusalem. Jesus was being received as long-awaited king. People were cheering for him, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they were also screaming, Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? This isn't just some unknown vague term of Christianese praise. Actually, it means save now. Save now. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that He was to save Israel, to save His people. In fact, earlier in His ministry, the disciple of John would record for us about Jesus Perceiving then, Jesus is perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Some people want Jesus to be king, yes, but they want him the way they want him to be king. They want King Jesus to fight their wars in their ways. Hosanna, save now. And as equal as the yearnings and the joyous cries of this crowd on the triumphal entry was also the hatred and the scheming and the evil plans of even Jesus' own people, the establishment that He was a part of, to where by that very Thursday Jesus was saying things which amounted to His knowing that He would soon depart. He would soon give His life. In fact, the author Luke records for us in his Gospel account, perhaps only weeks before Jesus was at this place in Jerusalem for His last week, and taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And so, 
it is, it has to be for the emotion of these disciples, especially from Jesus entering in that morning, Sunday morning. And despite the continual hatred and vitriol from the higher-ups and the power-hungry within their own Jewish church, finally, here is a crowd to receive them. A crowd who wants Jesus to be Lord. And to go from that, no doubt, memorable Thursday, Jesus records for us then that, excuse me, that Sunday, and then back to this memorable Thursday, Jesus is saying around a table, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. These words that are familiar to us, but also that might be a little bit foreign, that this is Jesus upsetting a long tradition of Jewish understanding and stating, basically, you and I are partakers of a new era, a new dawn, a new kingdom, and Jesus is the king. However, right after this statement, we we read something very interesting, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. And so we have this conundrum. We have this confusion that on one side Jesus is acknowledged as, and Jesus professes to be the Messiah, the King, and the likes of David, the King who ushers in a kingdom. But then on the other hand, we have Jesus constantly making references to a betrayal, references to being handed over to die. So there's a question that should come up for us. Well, we know the answer if we read our Bibles, but Jesus, if you're a king with crowds who want to take you by force and crowds who want you to save now, why don't you deal with your betrayers? Why don't you deal with your haters? You have the power, the authority. And then those hard days happen where this king bringing in the kingdom dies. <laughs> he dies. And this king where shouts of Hosanna, save us, as he hangs on the cross, Luke tells us, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged rallied at him, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But he doesn't save himself. He doesn't get down off the cross. Rather, he dies for the world to see. For his opponents, who just knew that he wasn't the Messiah, indeed he dies. For his disciples, who were certain that he was the Messiah, he died. For all those watching, Jesus died. But He was the King. He was the Messiah. He was bringing a a kingdom. We, We took a covenant together, Jesus. So why are the evil ones winning? Why is Rome winning? Why are the corrupt leaders winning? 
So much so that when Jesus resurrects, what happens? Matthew tells us, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest and all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Inconceivable. (laughs) Even in resurrection, his cause is diminished and dismissed. His plans are constantly thwarted. And Matthew would continue to say that even before Jesus ascends, what happens? Very next verses in Matthew 28 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What? (laughs) He was resurrected. Why did some still doubt? Could just be flat out unbelief. But I wonder if Luke's telling us, uh, Luke's telling of the ascension has some bearing on this. Acts 1 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) It goes back to Hosanna to save now. Be our king, our way. But here is Jesus the king who ushers in a kingdom. He doesn't lift a finger against the Romans. In fact, he dies put to death in large part by his own people and by the Romans. He resurrects. People are still doubting his very presence and then he leaves. But you said you were the Messiah. You said you were the greater King David and you resurrected. That's great because we thought you were defeated. But it's only been 40 days and now you're leaving. (laughs) And Rome is still in control. Save us now, Jesus. Save us now. It's not the kingdom they wanted, isn't it? But Jesus said several times, and Graceland read for us, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And when Jesus first started preaching, what did he say? Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, is near. How so? With the king crucified and ascended and off this earth, how is the kingdom of God here? It is here. Many of us, I think, are blind to it. When I was studying for this topic this week and having a hard time, I was convicted, really convicted, by something that Jesus says to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus in his trial on that hard week speaks of a kingdom to a guy named Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. 
Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It is a kingdom not of this world. It is a kingdom where his servants don't fight for it. It is a kingdom that comes bearing witness to the truth. It is a kingdom in which that Jesus does on that cross solidifies our citizenship in it. If you are this week, for whatever reason, I have no idea why you would be, upset, disturbed, shaken about the kingdom of this world that you live in, know this, you are not part of this world. You are not a citizen of this kingdom. Nobody can take from you your true citizenship, your citizenship in the kingdom of God. If you believe that Christ is who He says He is, that He is the Messiah, He is the Son of God, He has died for your sins, He has risen again, and this you do not doubt, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us. Hear the past tense in that? He has delivered us from the domain, some translations say, from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Do you hear the present consideration in that? Right now, you are in a kingdom that is transcendent, coexisting, and better and clean and saved from the powers of darkness. If you're in Christ, you're in the kingdom of His beloved Son. Philippians 3.20 says that our very citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of God's kingdom right now. That's where our citizenship lies. In fact, in Philippians 3.20, we find the place where the Greek word that citizenship is used for, which I will not tell you what it is because I don't intend to test you on it. But the idea of that Greek word is our government, where our laws are made, (laughs) where our D.C. is and where our Boise is, is in heaven. It's God's throne. That's where our citizenship is. So what is this kingdom? We find ourselves in a series on doctrine, looking at the statements in our faith and practice. We've made it to Doctrine 8. I can see that the crowd has dwindled. Don't worry, they'll be back at Advent season once I get done with this. But we're trucking. We'll make it. And uh, in this eighth uh, doctrine, we're going to be hearing about God's kingdom. Here's the statement. We believe... The church is called to demonstrate in this life the righteous character of Christ's present and coming kingdom. The kingdom is present now to the extent that the people of God hear His voice and obey it. The coming kingdom will be initiated by the second appearing of Jesus Christ as foretold by the prophets and by the resurrection of the dead. The world will then be judged righteously by Jesus Christ and there will come everlasting punishment for the finally unrepentant wicked and everlasting blessedness for the righteous. At that time, the world will be freed from the grip of evil and satanic power, and Christ will reign over a restored universe. This statement is generally saying that you and I further the kingdom. Secondly, Christ consummates the kingdom. And then lastly, the world will enjoy the kingdom. First, you and I further the kingdom. Again, you and I 
uh, or we believe the church is called to demonstrate in this life the righteous character of Christ's present and coming kingdom. The kingdom is present now to the extent that the people of God hear his voice and obey it. I'm going to put a little weight on you. There is a direct correlation of God's kingdom presence in our world to the obedience of his people. Let me say that again. There is a direct correlation of God's kingdom presence in our world to the obedience of his people. If you pray the Lord's Prayer often, which I'd encourage it simply by virtue of simple obedience to God's word, this is how he wants his people to pray. But when we pray, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Do you hear these two statements side by side? Here's what this means, Christian. If a week like this makes you yearn for a more present reality of the kingdom of God, to some extent it's on you and me. It's on you and me. Because if I am praying, God, your kingdom come and your will be done, but then I'm not obeying him. (laughs) I'm saying one thing, but I'm doing the other. That's called hypocrisy. If I want his kingdom to come and his will be done, what is his will for my life? Am I obeying that will? Kevin, give me some more money for my causes. Will you give me some more time? Will you obey me when I tell you to, I don't know, mend that relationship, talk to that person, lay your weapons down, or surrender this area of your life, yield to me concerning this habit and this sin, whatever it is. Because, friends, if you and I obey God here, then we will be confessing with both words and actions, your will be done. There is a direct correlation of God's kingdom presence in our world to the obedience of his people. Are you tired of the kingdom of America and you want the kingdom of God? Amen. Obey God. It starts with one person at a time. It's how Jesus did it himself. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Do you hear the obedience of, of Christ there? I'll just speak for my own personal failings because I believe all of you are perfect. I just come here to vent every now and then. When I pray, God, your kingdom come, I personally have a propensity not to think that that concerns me directly, right? Your kingdom come. Well, only God knows when it will come. If God's kingdom is a place where his will perfectly takes place, he died so we can be doing our part. He died and rose again so we can put our own will to death and do His will. So I have to stop wondering when His kingdom will come and I have to stop putting my hope in what I can't control. And I have to start surrendering what I can control. That is my own will and my own volition and say, King Jesus, reign in my heart so I can bring Your kingdom to come insofar as I'm doing Your will and Your will is being done, right? You hear me? You and I further the kingdom right now. That's on us. Secondly, Christ consummates the kingdom. The coming kingdom will be initiated by the second appearing of Jesus Christ, as foretold by the prophets, and by the resurrection of the dead. The world will then be judged righteously by Jesus Christ, and there will come everlasting punishment 
for the finally unrepentant wicked and everlasting blessedness for the righteous. We opened in large part looking at Jesus' first coming, the Passion Week. The author of Hebrews makes allusion to both his first and his second coming. In Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with in the middle of verse 26, he says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ has appeared to take away our sin. He will appear again, says the author, to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. There is a salvation that has been accomplished and then a a salvation that will be finalized, if you will. The Bible speaks of you are saved, you have been saved, and you're being saved, just to confuse you. (laughs) When Christ consummates the kingdom, I believe there's a twofold happening here. Christ raises the dead, and then Christ judges the world. That easy enough? I hope so, because I'm about to make it really difficult for you. (laughs) No, Christ raises the dead. Paul makes a clear argument for this in 1 Corinthians 15. His basic argument is this. If Jesus has risen, so will we. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 14 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? In the Jewish religion, one of the sects, the groups, the the denominations, if you will, did not believe really in the afterlife, let alone the resurrection of the dead. Apparently this had made it over into Christianity, and Paul's point here is, don't you realize that the heart of the gospel is our resurrected Lord? Right? We don't go around preaching that Jesus died on the cross because a dead Jew on the cross is amazing. <laughs> no, what's amazing is that He took our sins on that cross and then He rose again. <laughs> now that's amazing. And His rising again is not an afterthought. It's not a noteworthy part of the Gospel. But Paul seems to think that that's where all the weight of the Gospel lies. Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, belief in a physical resurrection of the dead, your and my bodies rising again, connects intricately to Christ's actual resurrection. If there is no dead rising, then supposing someone believes that, why can you believe if Christ rose if he doesn't give us power to rise? That's Paul's reasoning. We, we scoot on down to verse 20 of the same chapter where Paul continues, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, first fruits, the first picking, a prelude of things to come. God throughout the Scriptures, if you read the Old and New Testament, <clears throat> He seems to like to speak in repetition. I said this uh, phrase in Sunday school. I heard a quote this week. History may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. <laughs> and, and the rhyme here is this, that, that Jesus, the God-man, as human, He rose again. <laughs> we too, though not all 100% like Jesus, being God, nevertheless, we too will rise. Jesus' resurrection was just a first fruit, the beginning. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul is saying this, that if you and I are willing to believe that we're all affected in death by what Adam has done, we must be willing to believe that just as Jesus reverses Adam's curse on us, so too we will share in Jesus' same fate, namely resurrection. And then Paul points to a timestamp on when this resurrection will take place. He says, but to each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul says at Jesus' coming, his second coming, all those who belong to Christ will resurrect like Jesus did. Christ raises the dead. But as we continue on in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that second point, Christ judges the world. Verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. People are still dying. Christ hasn't come back yet. (laughs) We see the end here, that the final judgment, that when Christ comes again, as Hebrews says, first he came to deal with sin. That's what he did at his first coming. But now he's coming to deal with salvation for those eagerly awaiting him. Now here's how the salvation is accomplished. Judgment. (laughs) Evil is finally done with. Christ's accomplishing of dealing with sins in his first coming, I believe, is providing a way of escape. Because through him and through accepting Christ, through yielding him, through saying, not my will, your will be done, that's how we avoid the judgment. But you and I know this. We saw it this week. We see it every week through the news and through the mirror. Well, just me. Again, all of you are perfect. (laughs) There is still a weight of sin on this world, right? It's a weight of sin where people haven't taken the way of escape from it. They remain enslaved by it, thinking that it's what will satisfy. And what Paul is promising and what Christ promises and what the Holy Spirit says is that Christ will come again and finally do away with all of it entirely. Well, what's taking him so long? (laughs) Paul wrote this likely in the middle of the first century. In fact, in this chapter, he's writing 1 Corinthians 15. He also says that people who saw the resurrected Lord were still alive at the time of his writing. The Apostle Peter, writing about the second coming of Christ, attributes really one thing to the long wait that we have until Christ comes again, and it comes down to mercy. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus wants all to reach repentance. God has a long wick. He's really, really patient. Some of you, maybe you're like me, and after this week you're like, I'm done. (laughs) Next, please. 2020, go away. Don't come again another day. Meanwhile, there's an interesting passage in the book of, of Genesis. When God is making his covenant with Abram, 
in Genesis 15, God gives Abram a little bit unveiling of the future of his family to come. And he tells them about how his grandson Jacob will end up in Egypt, and he tells them that they'll be there for 400 years and end up in slavery. And he tells them how the Israelites will then come back and take the promised land of Israel. Well, why 400 years? You can just give us the promised land now. <laughs> Genesis 15:16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What? <laughs> what is God saying? The Amorites haven't burnt my wick out yet. I mean, they're sinning, but I'll give them some time. <laughs> and they're still, the, 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 they're still sinning I just mentioned. We're talking about child sacrifice. <laughs> We're talking about sinning. How much time, Abraham might ask? Well, right now, about 400 years. <laughs> See if they can repent in that amount of time. Meanwhile, some people look at the past 70 years or so as too long of a downward spiral of sin. God has a long wick. He wants people to repent. He really wants people to repent. He really doesn't want anybody to perish. That's the kind of kingdom he wants. That's the kind of kingdom where people have discovered their Savior and discovered they don't need to be enslaved by sin. They can be redeemed. When he does come back to judge, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 again, picking it up in the middle of verse 24, that Jesus will be destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, the judgment has more to it than just an abstract evil is done away with, but it actually has some personal consequences. <laughs> the resurrection of the dead is twofold, some to life and some to judgment. To explore this topic, I want to connect it with something we've already mentioned. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate about his kingdom? He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You understand this language is that truth and belief in that truth is a weighty currency in God's kingdom. You understand that? It has implications. I also mentioned a statement from John 5. I says the kingdom is now here insofar as we do God's will. And I mentioned what Jesus said. He says, but he only does what he sees the Father doing, the Son does likewise. Well, that statement of Jesus is followed by a few things in John 5. Jesus is so bold to say that God the Father has given him authority. Jesus says that he has the authority to give life and to judge. Jesus says that he is deserving of the same honor that the Father receives. And now we read things like this, that Jesus says it, and maybe it's too familiar to us to where it doesn't faze us. Would it faze you if I said to you, you know, I have the power to give people life. <laughs> I have the power to judge the same way that God judges you. I should be honored the same way that God is honored. You should rightly start running and say, heretic. Jesus was saying these things. He was perceived to be blaspheming. To hear such things was outlandish, to say it lightly. And I bring up John 5 because later in this passage... Jesus begins to speak about the weight of the currency of truth in his kingdom. 
and how that relates to the resurrection to life or judgment, we hear Jesus say, Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. We hear it plainly here that the primary necessity of coming into eternal life is hearing Jesus at his word and believing him. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So in here in verse 25, we have to know he's talking about a spiritual reality, right? Because he says the hour is now here. Jesus says the hour is now here. We, we jump down to verses 28 and 29 and we find another death to life experience happening for us in the future. He says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Remember the God likes to repeat things. The resurrection that has taken place in your heart if you're a Christian is pointing to a physical resurrection at the end of the world. And for those who have done good, says Jesus, what is good? Jesus is is talking is he talking about primarily good deeds here? I mean, we we Protestants squirm at the idea of good deeds equals heaven and bad deeds equals hell. Well, I got some verses for you, and you're like, you've been giving us verses all day. <laughs> Do you remember what James says in his second chapter? Faith without what is dead? Works. Don't miss the first part of that phrase. What without works? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. Faith in Jesus. It is the faith that produces the works. Because if you have true faith in Jesus, you will be doing good works. Does that make sense? So those who have done good in John 5.29, the only people way people can do good is by true and pure faith in God. What about those who do evil? We've been going through the book of John in Dean's class, and I'm stealing something that Silas brought up that's very interesting, and that uh, he was catching on to a theme in the book. Look at what Jesus says condemns people throughout the book of John. So in this sense, what is the evil or wickedness that Jesus talks about? We talked about Jesus' talk with Nicodemus. He says in John 3.18, he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you hear the problem here? What separates the non-condemned or the not condemned from the condemned? Belief. Belief in Jesus. Because for the non-believing, he's condemned already. What about John 8.24? He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, what's the one thing keeping Jesus' hearers from dying in their sins? Belief. Believe that Jesus is he who he says he is. John 16, 8 and 9. And in the last talking here at the Last Supper, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. See how Jesus qualifies sin there because they do not believe in me. My point in all this, going back to John 5, those who have done evil, I'm not excluding evil deeds or wickedness, but just how belief or true faith in Jesus will lead to good works, so unbelief in Jesus and unbelief in God will naturally lead to evil in those who do evil. Those who do good, everlasting life. Those who do evil, everlasting 
punishment. Regroup here. You and I further the kingdom. If we pray His kingdom come, His will be done, are we doing His will in in our own lives? You and I further the kingdom. Christ consummates the kingdom. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to judge the world. Our last point in our statement. The world will enjoy the kingdom. Here's the last sentence in our statement. At that time, the world will be freed from the grip of evil and satanic power and Christ will reign over a restored universe. When Jesus showed up the first time and he started his ministry, he walked into a synagogue in in Nazareth, his hometown. And he opened a scroll and he began to read aloud. Luke 4 tells us what he read. He's reading Isaiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus is a king bringing bringing his kingdom where the poor, not just monetarily poor, but the poor in spirit, hear the good news. The captives, captives to sin, to lies, to deceit, will be freed from their captivity. The blind recover their sight. Those blind to Christ, blind to receiving him, blind to knowing that to have Christ is to have life here now and abundantly in life forevermore. And Jesus came and he spoke that, that for those who believe, they receive that. And up until Jesus comes again, that reality can still be had in him to this day. But he is coming back a second time. I love how Romans 8 puts this. And in fact, this is how I would like to end this morning. I invite you all to to close your eyes with me as we begin to pray. And listen to Paul's encouragement here as the world will get to enjoy his kingdom. So go ahead and bow your head, close your eyes. For I consider, says Paul, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope... That is, seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, I just tried to tackle a subject that would probably take a few years to unpack, to do it justice. What we do know is that you ushered in a kingdom with Jesus. We know that the kingdom that you have brought is one where well (laughs) it's 
one where good news is given to the poor. It's one where you proclaim liberty to the captives. And it's one where you proclaim the Lord's favor over us. Father, we are grateful for that. We're grateful that we're part of a kingdom that spreads insofar as we obey your word. We're grateful that you're not done, that you didn't come, die, resurrect, save us from sins, and then leave us to ourselves, but you are coming back at a final day. A day where sin and evil will finally be dealt away with entirely. Father, in the meantime, help us to be spreading your kingdom humbly, obediently. Father, help us to continue to give love to those around us, love to those who we agree with and those who we disagree with. Help us to be doing whatever it is your will might be for us on any given day so that your kingdom can continue to spread. Thank you for bringing the kingdom and thank you that your kingdom will outlast any other kingdom of this world. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you would please give us good travels as we return home. Help us to have a good week and to be doing your kingdom business. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.